Welcome to the New York City Bar Association podcast. In this special episode, Pathway to the Profession, a landscape of exclusion. Why do you have to take the LSAT to get into law school? Is the modern bar exam the best way to protect the public and sort bar admission applicants? Why is the law school curriculum designed the way that it is? What does it mean to have the character and fitness to be a lawyer? Two academic experts helped us unpack the history, structure, and outcomes of these institutions of selection, and they tease out the many interconnected ways in which the status quo functionally excludes people from underrepresented communities from entering the legal profession. We are operating in the legacy of the purposefully exclusionary culture and rules and rituals that we set up. The City Bar appreciates the contributions of its Council on the Profession to this podcast episode. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar or its committees. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast on the Pathway to the Profession, A Landscape of Exclusion. I'm Mary Lou Bielek. I co-chair the City Bar Council on the Profession. The process of selecting those who will have the privilege of joining our profession has been the subject of much discussion recently. We're trying to sort out the implications of the Supreme Court decision in the Harvard, North Carolina case. We're gearing up for a newly developed and reformed bar exam called NextGen. Many states are considering alternative pathways to bar admission, including Oregon, California, Minnesota. And the ABA has been considering the possibility of making the LSAT optional for law school admission. We have today two experienced and expert guests to help us sort out how it is that our profession looks the way it looks today in the hopes that we can think about whether it's the way we want it to be and how to change it. I think often about the Bell Hooks quote, and she said, I will not have my life narrowed down. I think about that in the context of the students I served at CUNY Law School and at UMass who feel like what happened to them during the admissions process and in law school was narrowing them down. And I think in part, we want to think more broadly about how we're narrowing down who gets in generally. And when they get there, do we narrow them further? Who gets into our profession? Who becomes lawyers? Who become the people who make the laws and interpret the laws? And are the stewards of justice? Who becomes our ruling class? Democracy is a form of government of inclusion. And if we're narrowing down the people who we finally let in, are we doing right by our goal of creating a ruling class or a democracy, creating a civil society? Many of us were raised to believe that our admission to law school was the result of our proving that we were the best and the brightest through a merit-based exam and merit-based grades on a landscape over which Horatio Alger walked. And we were measured and we came out on top. I think that's not the understanding that we have of the world in 2020. There remains the perception among many of us in the profession, and there remain the vestiges of the selection process that we are the best and the brightest. We need to include only the best and the brightest in the profession. And the proof of the earning of that privilege is in our standardized entrance test for law schools, is in the pedagogy of our law schools, and is in our current pathway to licensure in the profession. I'm here today with Professors Carla Pratt and Joan Howard, and those assumptions and those premises are what we're going to probe. I'll let our guests introduce themselves before we get started. Professor Pratt, could you go first? My name is Carla Pratt, and I serve as the Ada Lowell Fisher 
faculty chair in civil rights, race, and justice in law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. Prior to my current appointment, I served as dean at Washburn University School of Law. And prior to that, I was a faculty member at Penn State Dickinson Law. Thank you, Professor Howard. My name is Joan Howarth. I am a law professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, UNLV. I am the former dean or one of the former deans at the law school at Michigan State. And I'm also a bar examiner in Nevada and have been doing that for the last few years. Professor Howarth, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the scholarly work you've done in the area of access to the legal profession? After writing about bar exams and related issues for a long time. I have published a book that is called Shaping the Bar, the Future of Attorney Licensing. And in that, I started out trying to address the two basic problems that I think we have, have created a crisis in attorney licensing. And those problems are, on the one hand, we do not do a good job of preparing law students to be able to practice law competently when they graduate. And the bar exams do not do a good job of assessing competence to practice law. On the other hand, law schools and bar exams together do an excellent job of making it very hard for people without means to become lawyers and make it very hard for people of color and other people from disadvantaged to become lawyers. So we have the worst of both worlds. We have tests and educational requirements that don't protect the public, but that are barriers, significant barriers to people who could be wonderful future lawyers. I know that for many years you've been writing on this topic. What kind of scholarly work research did you do to add to what you already knew and what you already, your opinions about the bar exam in writing the book? A lot of the work that I did was really to delve into the history of licensing of lawyers in the United States. I was a little bit familiar with the history of legal education, but I found that it was impossible to understand how we got ourselves to where we are without going backwards in history to see where it started particularly because the legal profession is such a cautious, many ways backwards-looking profession, right? We're always worried about precedent. We look backwards as a primary methodology of legal analysis. And it turns out that we are stuck in traditions and culture and values that really originated, they started way earlier, but are very similar to what lawyers did in the 19th century. So here we are in the 21st century using academic values and rituals of bar exams that were really created at a time when the profession was quite proud of being essentially white Christian men of means. And we had systems that worked for that group and to keep out other groups. And then here we are decades, century and a half later, doing so much of the same thing with professed goals now that have changed. That is goals of inclusivity and diversity and equity. We are operating in the legacy of the purposefully exclusionary culture and rules and rituals that we set up. Forward to hearing more about that. 
Professor Pratt, I know that for many years you've been an outspoken critic of some things in legal education and licensing while valuing highly our profession and the justice work we can do. But can you tell us a little bit about your scholarly research into the area? Sure. Yes, you're absolutely right. This is a profession that I love. I'm always honored to be a member of the profession, but I'm an outsider to the profession. And so I bring an outsider's perspective and I bring that perspective to my research as well. And what I've looked at is how difficult it is for people from outsider groups to join our profession. As Professor Howard was mentioning, it's a system that was built white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men and people of affluence. And so if your identity doesn't fit that mold, then it's still to this day a lot harder to enter the profession. For example, and this isn't to pick on the Law School Admission Council, but the primary mechanism for people seeking admission to law school to gain admission is to take the LSAT, the law school admission test. And for decades, we've known that this test has a disparate impact on students of color with the most harsh impact on Black applicants. So the majority of Black applicants to law school are not admitted to any law school. And that's probably because of their LSAT score, because we know that the median LSAT score for Black test takers is a 144. And a 144 LSAT will not earn entry to most of our law schools that are ABA law schools. And so right there, it's a great barrier. And if you look at LSAC's data, you'll see that eight or 9,000 Black people take the test each year. And then when you look to see how many of those actually apply to law school, so many of them get low test scores that we lose half of them. They don't even apply. And then of the ones that do apply, we lose another half of those and they don't even get in. And so then we're wondering, where are all the Black students? Why aren't they here? The aspiration is there. They want to join our profession, but we've created this barrier. And yes, we cannot have open admissions to law school. We need to make sure that students have the requisite academic preparation to succeed in law school, but we need to be creative. LSAC has done so many great things for diversity, and they've been a great diversity partner for legal education, so I don't want to diminish their name in any way. But until Kelly Testy came to LSAC, there was very little interest in trying to mitigate the disparate effects of race that are imposed on applicants of color due to the LSAT. I've had the privilege of having a conversation with Kelly about could we have a less speeded version of the test for students who or applicants who earn a score that places them in the bottom quarter of applicant test takers nationwide. So if you scored in the bottom quarter of all test takers nationwide, then you would get an opportunity to take a less speeded version of the test because we know that it is the speeded nature of the test. It is the speededness that causes most people difficulty, right? Those reading comprehension problems and the logic games, they take time. And if we 
had a less speeded version of the test that folks in the bottom quarter could retake a less speeded version, they would have additional evidence to submit to the law schools that they're applying to to say, look, I can do the work. I just can't do it under these hyper-speeded conditions. Because when you compare my score under the standard test to my score under the less speeded test, you can see I improved dramatically. And then I would give law schools additional information so that we could know who, despite their speeded LSAT score, is capable of succeeding in law school. We know that standardized test scores correlate with socioeconomic status greater than they do probably anything else. And if we believe that socioeconomic status should dictate one's uh, ability to join our profession, so if we're trying to maintain an elitist profession, then standardized tests are going to help us do that. But if we're trying to build an inclusive profession that brings people like me who came from poverty into the profession, then standardized tests are disproportionately going to exclude people from lower income backgrounds. I would just add two things. In addition to what Carla just said, law schools, even knowing the disparate score gap from the LSAT, even knowing how limited the usefulness of the LSAT is, it really is designed to predict first-year grades, and it does that to a certain extent, but it shouldn't be used in any other way. Law schools are misusing LSAT scores and overusing them, and one of the ways that they're overusing them is to decide who gets financial aid. And so we have a situation in which not only is it harder for students of color to get into law school, they're also paying more white students. So we have the debt numbers for Black and Latinx students going up right now when the debt numbers for white students are going down. That's on the law schools. So I want to pause on this for a minute because I'm sure that some of our listeners are nearly as old as I am. When I went to law school, all the aid from law schools was based on financial need. Isn't that true anymore? It's definitely not true. The one way to understand legal education is to think of an industry focused single-mindedly on status and prestige because the values of legal education now are at so many law schools to improve the ranking of the law school. Improving the ranking of the law school can be done by improving the LSAT scores of your entering class. And therefore, whatever the rhetoric is about diversity, equity, and inclusion, when it comes to where the dollars go, dollars are going from many law schools directly to merit scholarships, which are really test score scholarships, bring in the test scores that law schools want in order to improve their ranking. And that is um, a, a huge ethical and moral problem for legal education. It is. And I have to acknowledge that I was complicit in that problem when I was a dean, because part of our job as dean is to preserve and enhance the reputation of our law school. While we strove to allocate more funds to need-based scholarships, the majority of my scholarship budget went to students who had strong LSAT scores because we knew that was going to impact our rank in U.S. News 
And if we did not allocate scholarship dollars to students with strong LSAT scores to try to get them to choose our law school for their education, that we were going to see a class with a lower overall profile in terms of their academic profile with LSAT score and GPA. And so what was driving this was the U.S. News ranking, because in the minds of most people, the reputation of your law school is determined by U.S. News. And that really has a deleterious effect on the behavior of law school. And I I speak up because as a former dean, because I don't want deans to be vilified in this conversation because we're put in that position where we have to, again, protect and preserve and enhance the reputation of the institution. And that's a significant part of our job. And so we ignore U.S. news at the institution's peril. And so there needs to be more work to evaluate, help students and prospective students evaluate law schools without this over-reliance on U.S. news because of the pernicious effects on U.S. news on law school, it's going to just perpetuate this problem of law schools over-utilizing and over-relying on the LSAT. I hear you saying that your university, your donors, and employers reference U.S. News as a way of judging the quality of the law school and thus the quality of its graduates. And I know that we're at a time when there are some conversations going on about how to break that trend, the deans of a number of law schools across the country have said that they're not going to participate in the parts of the U.S. news data collection that aren't reliant on public data. So there's a little hopefulness there. And on the LSAT scores, there's a little hopefulness based on the recommendation of the ABA Council of the Section on Legal Education recommending that law schools no longer be required to measure each candidate using a standardized test score. So we've talked about the LSAT as being the first place where thousands of would-be lawyers, people from communities who are currently underserved by our profession, get excluded. But let's talk about mm, the people, people maybe like the three of us, who got past that, that barrier, despite the fact that we didn't meet the norm in the profession. And we make it to law school if we're going today with a huge loan to finance our legal education. What are the pitfalls for us as we move through the rest of the process to gaining admission to our profession? Law schools are getting better about welcoming first-generation students, welcoming students of color, welcoming working students in general, I believe. Many law schools are much better than they used to be. But legal education is still largely set up to benefit people who come in knowing something about the law, such as having parents who are lawyers. There are great lawyers, right? There are great lawyers everywhere across our country who were the first in their family to graduate from high school or the first in their family to graduate from college. Wonderful lawyers have been doing that, but they did it having to work against the culture in which legal education was essentially a sink or swim operation when some of the people in the room were familiar 
with legal vocabulary, legal concepts, legal culture, and others had no idea what the rest of them were talking about. So that to the extent that the law schools are getting rid of the sink or swim mentality, which was cruel and ineffective, it's a better time to come in to the, into the profession than it used to be. But it's also amazing how much we're still stuck in that culture of imagining that even though we're doing so many of the same things that were done in, say, 1870 with the purpose of keeping out everybody but the sons, the healthy sons of families of means who could afford to go to a law school instead of learning to be a lawyer the way Abraham Lincoln did it by, by working in a law office. We're still using those same rituals and still in some way trapped, amazingly trapped by some of those values that we should have been able to shed by now. Assume that some people who make it into law school come into law school less well-equipped in terms of the amount of care and feedback that they've been given over the years to become strong writers or the, the kinds of preparation you might have at some colleges as opposed to others, is it a problem that it's going to take them longer to hit their stride? What are the problems that emerge if you don't hit your stride during the first semester? Or what are the benefits that come to those who are better prepared and actually hit their stride from day one? That's a great question, Mary Lou, because I just had a conversation with a student who did not hit her stride in the first semester of law school. And this is a student who graduated from college with highest honors. And so she was devastated to learn that she got an F in a course her first semester. And she said she did all the reading assignments. She thought she had mastered the subject but she didn't understand law school has taking methodology. My heart just broke because I thought this is a problem that can easily be fixed. She comes from a family. She's a, going to be a first-generation lawyer, and she did not have a formative assessment in that course where she earned an F. If she had even one formative assessment, a midterm exam, with feedback would have given her an opportunity to learn law school exam-taking methodology because the professor would have given feedback on that exam and she could have said, oh, okay, now I see what you're expecting me to do and now I have the ability to correct that for the final exam. And it's really catastrophic that this happens to students who are first-generation lawyers who don't know anyone you know, in their family or their friend circle or their social network, who's going to say to them, hey, taking a law school exam is a lot different. Let me talk to you about the methodology. Remember what you're learning in legal writing? You're actually going to apply that on writing a law school exam, that IRAC method that you're learning. And so they don't have that person to pull them aside. So again, the students who are the most vulnerable from a socioeconomic standpoint are the ones most likely to be first gen and therefore are the ones most likely not to have this information and to trip up that first semester in law school where they don't have the benefit of formative assessments with feedback. And that has another deleterious effect on them 
because grades are so impactful in their search for employment for law students. So now she's trying to figure out how to rehabilitate herself with potential employers as she tries to seek summer employment. And the damage has been done. And I just feel as a legal educator, as legal educators collectively, we have to do better. And I'm really hoping that we will see a standard emerge from the ABA Council that requires formative assessment in every course in that, especially in that first semester of law school. And just to put a point on that, so that means she's carrying it up in her transcript. It means she may be in danger of probation. And there's all the stigma and the added stress that puts her under. It means she will probably, in most of the law schools in the country, won't be on law review. And that at the end of the day, when the very narrow range of cumulative grade point averages are stacked on that ladder, she's not going to be in the top third. And even if she didn't have an F, if she had all Cs, the same would be true. And so at the end of the first semester, I don't know this student, your student's position, but many students I knew who found themselves in that position because they were carrying huge debt load. And they were even trying to work outside of school through through school to lessen their debt load. But they already knew that it was unlikely they were going to get one of the better jobs. And there, while she could become, and I'm guessing if she made her way to you, she's going to become an excellent lawyer. She is going to have to go some extra miles to convince employers of that. Joan, did you have something to add there? It's backwards, but it's completely true that first-year grades matter more than second-year grades or third-year grades in getting jobs after law school. And that's a residue of that legacy that imagines that some people are naturally good at this. And those people happen to be the people who have been in the profession over generations. But when you think about it, outsiders would wonder, shouldn't the grades near the end of the process matter more than the grades at the very beginning when everybody's just figuring it out? We do it completely backwards. We certainly do it backwards to achieve our goals of not just diversity, but inclusivity and equity. And I think that it's a point to pause on because I think it's so deeply ingrained in our culture that the ones who jump to it the quickest are the ones who deserve to be in the profession. And I think now that the profession has added values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's no longer the case. We won't end up with a profession that matches our values if we use who gets there the fastest as the measure of who gets to be in the profession. What are the other ways that we, through law school and our licensing and admissions process, have a disparate impact on outsiders and in particular on Black and other people of color? I'm going to defer to Dean Howard to talk about the bar, but I will say with respect to another point on curriculum in law school, and that is that when you are a student of color and you're studying the law and it relates to what you're studying relates to identity. So you're studying criminal law and constitutional law and 
these people in the cases have stories and they have stories that situate them relative to the government and that positions them very differently relative to the government. But a lot of teachers will ignore that and just teach the black letter law that emerges from the case and talk about the theory behind the black letter law while really ignoring the social context out of which the case arises. And I think that kind of approach to teaching, this colorblind approach to teaching, does a lot of harm with respect to students of color because they feel like their stories are being erased, their stories are being ignored. I also think that a lot of faculty members don't touch those things because they don't feel competent to do so. A lot of faculty members don't want to talk about the sexual orientation of the parties that this case arises out of or the race of the parties that this case that there's teaching deals with. But if we don't equip ourselves as faculty members to be competent, to have those conversations and to teach students how to identify systems that benefit some groups and burden others, we're not doing our jobs in terms of teaching them how to be lawyers. And I think some students withdraw from the law school experience because it's so disheartening that their experience is erased. Their experiences are marginalized or subordinated to this colorblind approach. We are going to talk about the bar exam in a minute, but I'm wondering if either of you want to talk about the character and fitness process. I was going to say a little bit more just about part-time issues. In addition to those issues of people's experiences being erased, we also have a structural problem. We have a structural preference to get new lawyers who could afford to take three years out of their lives and not work and go to school full-time. A hundred years ago, it was a lot easier to find a law school that offered a part-time program than it is today because we had many law schools that only did part-time programs. Today, we still have law schools that have part-time programs. And part-time law students who have work experience and perhaps are and probably are still working, they really have an advantage coming into the profession because of that work experience. But some employers, particularly large firms, are still stuck in outmoded notions of who is supposed to be the aristocracy of the profession, and they won't even interview anyone other than someone who was a full-time student. Now, I love teaching part-time students because they have not just the book smarts, but also the street smarts or the practical wisdom that comes from being out in the world. And lawyers need both. And yet we're in a profession in which for some employers, having been a part-time law student is seen as a detriment instead of any kind of advantage. I also, going back to what we were talking about tests before, I've been thinking a lot about educator Robert Steinberg because it's just lawyers, right? Law and all U.S. elites are really obsessed with standardized tests. It's in, in high school kids. Grade school kids, everybody is taking standardized tests and we use them, we love them, and we love to misuse them. So Steinberg has written that we actually can't tell whether these test scores that are everywhere indicate 
aptitude for success as we allocate the opportunities for success to people with high test scores. It's a kind of a self-fulfilling funnel. Imagine what our world might look like. Imagine what our profession might look like if we were trying to test for creativity, if we were testing for ethics, or if we were, even if it's not testing, if we were admitting for professional responsibility, we would have a different profession. And I think the world might be better off. I'm pretty sure the world would be better off. I've often wondered if we redefined merit and we admitted applicants to law school based on how much they've had to overcome, it would look radically different. Our law school's populations would look radically different. And for me, that's how I define merit in terms of that old adage about if you started on third base, getting a home run isn't such a big deal. I often think about the challenges that so many of our part-time students and so many of our students from lower-income backgrounds have had to overcome just to get to law school. And there's no recognition of that in terms of that being merit. But the student who's had the financial privilege and the private school education and Ivy League undergraduate education, that's the student that every law school wants. So can we talk a little bit about character and fitness, which is the last stage in the process before we, we allow someone to enter the profession? So character and fitness is a kind of a crucial idea, right? We need lawyers to be trustworthy. We need them to have ethics. We need them to be the kind of people who other people can trust with their biggest problems or their greatest opportunities. That's easy to understand. What is impossible to do, I think, is to predict who those people are because all of our efforts over many decades to figure out who are those people who we can predict are fit to practice and have the right character have historically turned out to be essentially reflecting the bigotry and biases of the era, whatever they might be. So character and fitness has been used to exclude women. It's been used to exclude people of color. It's been used to exclude gays and lesbians, LGBT people. It is, it's been used to exclude people with disabilities. It's been used in ways that are extremely problematic. Transgender candidates have all sorts of issues of exclusion, even on just the record keeping on character and fitness. Character and fitness is designed to work well for a young person who has never moved around, has had very few jobs, has had very few organizational involvements, has never had any police officer stop them for any reason. And that's not most people in this country. But it's, again, it's a legacy from an outmoded notion of who it is we really want in the profession. So I think the issues right now for character and fitness are certainly better in terms of race than they were historically. It was a challenge over many years for a Black American to be able to get through character and fitness. We have um, evidence from lawyers in the 1970s, for example, where the white lawyers were given a character and fitness interview that was perfunctory several weeks prior to the bar exam. Black lawyers were brought in the day before the bar exam and grilled all day. 
So we don't have that level of purposeful exclusion anymore, but we do have some significant issues that result in a profession that does not reflect what we want it to reflect. I've been thinking a lot most recently about use of criminal histories. Again, the, I, the notion behind character and fitness is that's really unusual. A small group of people, maybe, who are not the mainstream, but really the numbers of people in our country who have been arrested, I think it's a third of adults. I don't remember now. I don't have the numbers in front of me. The percentage of people in our country who've had misdemeanor convictions is really high, really and, high. And disproportionately non-white. Exactly. So you have a profession decrying the lack of representation of particularly for particularly black communities and Latino communities. And meanwhile, we have outmoded character and fitness rules that excluding from law school sometimes and from the profession, communities that are have been disparately impacted by involvement with the criminal system. That's wrong for several reasons. It's unjust because it assumes that people are only the worst thing they ever did. It's ineffective because it means we don't have in the legal profession the people who have the experience of what that legal profession does in the criminal setting. We need that. We know that we have um, an astonishing amount of systemic problems in criminal systems in the United States. People who had prior criminal histories, who have brought themselves out of that, who are now dedicated enough to get themselves to college, to get themselves in a position to be admitted to a law school, to become a lawyer, are especially interested in the work of helping to reform the criminal systems that we know need desperately to be reformed. So we should be able to do a better job in character and fitness, especially because the evidence, we have wonderful social science evidence now that maybe earlier generations didn't have, but we know now that after a certain number of years, and it's not very many, I think it's seven years, after seven years, somebody with a criminal conviction is no more likely to have another criminal conviction than someone who's never had a criminal conviction. So what are we doing keeping those folks out? I've always thought it's kind of irony that one of the bedrocks of our legal system is that you're innocent until proven guilty. Yet most states still ask whether you've ever been arrested. I could never square that. Similarly, credit, bad credit is a big problem on, ad, on admission, it's always a question on the application. And it imagines a world, I think it imagines a world where the person who has bad credit is a person who had all the money in the world and either was trying to swindle somebody or just didn't get around to paying their bills. When many people with bad credit history have been swindled or come from poverty and their story to bad credit is a very different story. And the fact that it's taking us so long to reform these things is hard to see as benign. It's not. We're still stuck with conscious, purposeful, and also unconscious biases about who it is who is worthy. We're also, as a profession, still stuck on our own status. So that was, that started a long time ago. Remember, Alexis de Tocqueville came to study America and concluded 
about the country that lawyers were the aristocracy of the United States. And lawyers are trying to make that true, and they're still trying to make that true. And how does that really fit with goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion? But or, no such, or democracy. Right. There's no such thing as a democratic, equitable, inclusive aristocracy. And yet that sometimes seems to be what we're pretending to try to be. Joan, I know you've studied the bar exam very closely over many years. And recently, the NCBE, the company that produces the bar exam that is used by almost every state in the country, has decided to go through a very extensive process and recreate the bar exam so that it is, for the first time, perhaps valid, and that it will connect to the skills and knowledge that new lawyers need. And they're calling it the next-gen bar exam. What do you think about it? Yes, the National Conference of Bar Examiners is finally scrapping the bar exam that's been in basically since I took the bar exam in 1980. So potentially the next-gen bar exam could be better. It should be better because it has fewer subjects being tested, supposedly, hopefully, fewer rules within those subjects, and more skills being tested. So that means that it is getting closer, it's moving closer to testing actual competence of new lawyers. Hopefully, it will require less memorization. The issues, though, that are still potentially problematic are two. One of them is speededness. We know that they're going to try and get this down to a day and a half, and it's hard to imagine being able to do everything that they're trying to do in a day and a half without keeping the terrible speededness, meaning people have to work much faster than they would in real life in order to even finish the exam, let alone do well. The other big problem has to do with setting the passing score. The reason that's important is because we've known for decades that setting a score too high as the passing score exacerbates racial and ethnic disparities. In other words, if you decide to require the passing score to be higher, you are purposefully deciding that you're going to increase a score gap between your white applicants, applicants of color. If you decide to pull it down, you are purposefully deciding that you're trying to reduce the score gap between white applicants and applicants of color. And well, let me, the, but wait, there for a second, I, let me just pretend confusion. So isn't the passing score set at some norm about what's considered competent? No. Today, every jurisdiction that uses the NCBE tests, which, as you say, is just about everybody, gets to set their own cut score or passing score. So different states use the same test to determine the same thing, minimum competence to practice law, but they set their own standards as to what number meets minimum competence to practice law. And what I think every state, I think New York and every other state that is in any way thinking about using the next gen needs to already be insisting to the NCBE that they are going to need to provide evidence of test scores and standard setting that will directly reduce 
racial disparities because the evidence already exists. Professor Howarth, as you did your work on your book and it came to the light, simultaneously, there's a movement across the country to reform licensing on the ground where law students and practitioners live. And in thinking about how to reform the bar exam, recently we've been aided by two empirical studies that ask what new lawyers need to be able to do to practice competently. And with the results of those surveys, the movement has accelerated and gathered steam. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what's happening across the country with respect to alternatives to the bar exam as a way to license new lawyers. Sure. I'm very encouraged by the number of states and that's state courts and boards of bar examiners that are developing new and much better ways to protect the public as alternatives to traditional bar exams. As you said, we now have solid research, especially the building a better bar study to provide empirical evidence about what new lawyers need to know and what they must be able to do to protect their client. We also have new understandings of the science of assessment, and those new understandings are also giving us the ability, just advances in assessment science, give us the ability to do fair, manageable, reliable, valid, rigorous assessment and evaluation of supervised practice. And that can be the gold standard, really much better than the bar exam for several reasons. If we do fair, efficient, rigorous evaluation of actual supervised practice, we can create more comprehensive assessments of what lawyers need to do and must be able to do. And it's a more authentic assessment of what lawyers need to know and what they must be able to do. So courts and bar examiners in several states, including Oregon, California, Minnesota, and others, are seriously considering alternative pathways in the form of experiential curriculum with outside evaluation and or post-graduation supervised practice with outside evaluation. So instead of using a two-day paper and pencil test to try to predict whether someone will be competent in the future, we can evaluate a candidate's work itself to determine if it is competent lawyering. That's a better measure, and I believe it's the way of the future. My book is titled Shaping the Bar, the Future of Attorney Licensing, and I have to say the future is coming at us even more quickly than I had imagined. I can't say enough about Joan's book because when you read shaping the future of attorney licensing in the bar, you also learn about the legal pathway to licensure historically. And we didn't always have to go to law school to become a lawyer. The whole idea of having to go get an undergraduate degree and then get a graduate degree in law on top of that, and then having to pass a specialized test to get into law school, all of those barriers were erected in an effort to maintain elitism in our profession because the people who were in power, thinking of people like Christopher Langdale at Harvard, wanted to maintain elitism in our profession. They wanted our profession to be on a pedestal, to be revered by society. And you can understand why they wanted that because 
lawyers are the champions of democracy, right? Lawyers have a lot of responsibility. They are the administrators of justice in our society. And so there was this desire for lawyers to have this aristocratic stature, if you will. And when immigrants started coming and wanting to join the profession and Jewish people started coming and wanting to join the profession and African-Americans started coming and wanting to join the profession, there was this concern that we were going to sully the profession, that we were going to paint the image and the public perception of the profession. And so there were barriers intentionally erected to limit those of us who could enter. And those barriers included making law a graduate degree. Harvard, I think, was the first school to require you had to have a bachelor's degree in order to study law. And then in order to study law, even once you have the bachelor's degree, you have to achieve a certain score on this admissions test. And that Christopher Lindell was very much in favor of admission tests because people back then believed that they actually measured intellectual acumen. We know now that they don't, right? We have research now that we know that's not the case. Professor Pratt, it made news recently that the Council of the Section on Legal Education and Admission to the Bar of the ABA has recommended that the standards no longer contain a requirement that schools use a standardized test to admit students. This would mean that schools could, if they chose, go test optional or do that for some portion of their class. This has been before the ABA House of Delegates and the ABA House of Delegates voted it down. The council at its last meeting made a decision to, to reintroduce it to the House of Delegates. So the council seems pretty intent on moving forward on this plan. I know there are deans in the country who are opposed to this. There's been a lot of controversy. Can you just lay out the issues for us and the potential? Before I speak to this issue, I have to say that although I am a member of the council, I am speaking on behalf just myself now. I'm not speaking on behalf of the entire council. I don't speak for the entire council. But from my perspective, the council really looked at this issue and had been looking at this issue for several years before I became a member of the council. And one of the things that the council was aware of was this perception of regulatory capture that had created by LSAC having this longstanding monopoly on the admission tests for law school. That recently changed with the council's approval of the GRE being a valid and reliable test for law school admission. But the reality is that the LSAT has become the standard for admission and that there aren't other regulating bodies, other accrediting bodies that require their schools to use an admission test as a matter of regulatory imperative. And so the council, I think, wanted to explore what was the genesis of the council being out of step with other accrediting bodies. What was the rationale for this? And it's not apparently clear why the LSAT was required, the standards require a valid and reliable 
admission tests and the LSAT enjoyed the status of being the only valid and reliable admission test for decades. But it's not really clear how that got into the standards. But one thing was clear, and that was the disparate impact that the test was having on excluding people of color from law school. Because as I said earlier, applicants of color were getting much lower scores than white applicants to law school. And you can see that when you look at LSAC's data. And so the question arose of, are we standing in the way of allowing law schools to use alternative means that could yield greater diversity than we see when we're using the admission test requirement. And so I think the hope is that by eliminating a requirement as a regulatory matter, that law schools will be able to experiment with other methods of determining who is ready for law study and that those methods won't have an equally disparate impact on the basis of race. Opponents of the recommendations suggest that chaos will exist following if this goes forward. And they suppose that all sorts of unfair ways of choosing among applicants will magnify instead of decrease the exclusionary impact by race will result back to the days of legacy admits, choosing students based on whether they've been to elite colleges. Aren't you worried about that? Well, we just talked about how I heard Profession is one that is very tied to prestige. So there is already this heightened awareness, I think, in the law school admission context with respect to pedigree, if you will. And so I understand the concern. And as someone who went to a non-elite college myself, I'm very sympathetic to that, which is why I would oppose as a council member an absolute ban on the LSAT. I would oppose that because for some students, I think that percentage is small, but for some, the LSAT is the only way that they can distinguish themselves because they did attend a lower prestige undergraduate institution. And so the LSAT for those students who can perform well on the LSAT becomes an equalizer where if they do well on the LSAT, they have an opportunity to get into some of the nation's top law schools. So the council has not chosen a test-blind approach. In other words, the council is telling law schools that they can choose to adopt a test-optional framework for law school admission, but There will be a guidance memo to schools that will tell schools that if a law student wants to submit an LSAT score to the school because that student thinks that's going to help their application, schools should not ban the LSAT and say, no, we're not going to accept your LSAT score. We're not going to consider that. So that is what I mean by schools can be test optional, but not test blind, where they're just outright banning the opportunity for a student to submit their standardized test, whether that's the GRE or the LSAT, because 
we want students to have more agency, to be empowered in presenting their best case to each school for admission. Professor Pratt and Professor Howarth, thank you so much for joining us today. You've brought so much expertise and wisdom to the questions that we've asked about, how we select who we admit to law school, how and what we teach in law school, how we decide whether those who've completed law school are competent to practice, and whether or not they have the character and fitness to practice. The answers to these questions are central to the development of justice in our country and to the integrity of what I think is the most cherished aspect of our democracy, the rule of law. We're grateful that you have dedicated your careers and your research to probing whether our longstanding customs serve our justice system well and support the rule of law and to challenging the aspects of those customs that might be improved and to offering us alternatives. And we're especially grateful for the time you've spent with us today. Thank you. For listeners who want to learn more, I recommend two great city bar reports. They dig into the numbers describing the exclusion that different groups experienced at various stages along the legal profession's pipeline. They also have a great podcast on our Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging dives into the reports from the city bar and speak with a researcher who did the work behind them. I also commend to you Professor Pratt's book. She's the co-author of the book, The End of the Pipeline, A Journey of Recognition for African-Americans Entering the Legal Profession. And she's written a great article called Radical Reformation, Diverse Pathways to Attorney Licensure. Finally, there's Professor Howarth's new book, which is listed as a must-read in legal education for 2024. That book is called Shaping the Bar, The Future of Attorney Licensing. And it is an in-depth, data-driven exploration of the history and the shape of our profession and gives a glimpse into what may be a promising future. Everything is linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. If this episode was meaningful to you, if it challenged some of your assumptions, be sure to check out Building Belonging, a podcast that embraces authentic conversations about DEIB solutions by amplifying the most marginalized voices in the legal industry and exploring spaces others dare not. It's streaming now on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, and at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. This podcast was produced by Mary Lou Bielek and Eli Cohen.